Welcome to this podcast from the Vessel Collective Church here in the heart of Texas. Our mission is to be vessels of the living Christ, set apart for His purpose and His kingdom. We thank you for sharing in this message here today. Amen. Can we thank our worship team this morning? That's awesome. You know, it's interesting, our, our, our prayer team gathered this morning, and, and interesting enough, we prayed for eight people to be there for our prayer meeting this morning before church, uh, as that we were planning, and God was so good, and, and He gave us an abundance of nine people. And so we just laughed and praised the Lord for His abundance, and being one person over the eight, and being this abundance of nine. And so... In, in our prayer time, what we prayed for, and what the, one of the things we asked the Lord for specifically was to give us spiritual eyesight, for us to see and have spiritual eyes to what he is doing. And I want you to know that this, this time of worship this morning, really, I, I experienced that in a significant way. I mean, just to, throughout our time of worship, we started with this, you know, we are family, and it's, it's this song that we all know, and we don't need lyrics for, we sang you know, at a wedding or at karaoke or wherever. But I thought about uh, the Delulos. I thought about Hannah Lee and Emma as they came in as sisters and that here they are without their mom and dad and their sisters, you know, because that song says, uh, I've got all my sisters with me. And I thought about Emma and Hannah Lee as they came in and they're driving to Tennessee later today, but they wanted to come to church first. And I thought, like, what a gift it is that God gives us family right? And not just our physical family, but our spiritual family. And so I want to encourage you, if you are new here or you have not gotten plugged in, that that is my heart and my hope is that every single one of us finds family, that we find family in this church and with other believers that we do life together. And the thing about family and what makes family family is not always just the fun and the, the, the great times like having a chili cook-off or Thanksgiving or whatever it is, but it's walking through really difficult times with one another. And that's interesting because the, the idea of that has just been really clear to me this morning as Shay and I were talking about this worship set this morning and singing, I'll Fly Away. And she said, man, I, I, she loves her grandmother, her granny that passed away. She lived with her grandmother and she passed away right after Shay got out of college. And that was really hard for her. And she, her grand, granny went to this Pentecostal church and they used to sing like, uh, you know, I'll fly away. And she, she was saying last night, I hope I don't get emotional during that song, thinking about my granny and thinking about family and what that means to us and how sweet and good God is to give us family. And the, the, to walk with us through really difficult and hard times, to walk with us through really fun times. And then in walks in the back of the door, Reed and Micah, and they bring their baby for the first time. Brand new baby, Langhanig, comes in. And so all the women in the church stop worshiping and go and see the baby. <laughs> but, you know, and I just thought, like, how sweet is it that God gives the gift of family? And funny enough, that is what we're talking about this morning. As we've been in this series of John, and I pray and hope and, uh, and, and anxious that it's been as encouraging and life-giving for you as we've been reading through John throughout um, this fall and in our small groups, is that we've talked about Jesus's interaction with different people. It's been this idea of this invitation of come and see. 
And so we've been really heavy in the first half of the book of John. And we talked about Jesus and his interaction with Nicodemus and this invitation to come and see. We look at Jesus and his interaction with this woman at the well. Sean taught about Jesus and him meeting with this, uh, this, this crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. And then Joe uh, talked about Jesus and his interaction with the Pharisees. We looked at Jesus and his interaction with the multitudes. And this morning, what we get to see is Jesus and his interaction with his family and how sweet that is. And we get this really intimate, beautiful view into the way Jesus interacts with these people that he's closest with, the people that know him, who love him, who've walked through life with him. And it's this really sweet picture. And interesting enough that, that what we get to see in this image, in this uh, story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, is we get to see Jesus interacting with his family in the midst of hurt and tragedy and pain. And so I just pray this morning that as we look at this story and as you think about your own life and you think about the context of your, your earthly family and we think about us being a family together and the difficult things and circumstances and experiences that we have. And there are a lot of things in our lives that we would say, man, I could do without that. I could leave that one out. I could skip over that. That doesn't have to be in my family history. But it's walking through that together with one another that makes us who we are. And so before we jump into that, um, I want to show you guys a quick video from the Bible Project. And I've talked about this before on Sunday morning, but the Bible Project uh, is, is a ministry that really helps bring theology and scripture to life. And they do a great job of explaining different concepts, different themes throughout the Bible and different books of the Bible. And so, as I mentioned, we've been in the beginning of the book of John for the bulk of this. Uh, and it's really, the book of John is broken out really into two acts. And it, it goes from, from John 1 through John 11, and then the second half until John 21. So take a look at this video that, that they do a great job of laying out, that out. The Gospel According to John. It's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and we learn at the end of the book that it comes from one of Jesus' closest followers called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he appears many times in the story itself, and there's some debate about whether it's John the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, or a different John who lived in Jerusalem and was known in the later church as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, the book embodies his eyewitness testimony, and it's been brilliantly designed with a clear purpose that he states near the end. John says, the story is written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name. John believes that the Jesus you read about in this book is alive and real and that he can change your life forever. The book's design is really cool. Its first half opens with an introductory poem and a short story that's followed by then a big block of stories about Jesus performing miraculous signs that generate increasing controversy. And it all culminates in his greatest sign, the raising of Lazarus, which creates the greatest controversy as Israel's leaders decide to kill Jesus. And that launches into the book's second half. These chapters focus on Jesus' final night and last words to his disciples, which are followed by his arrest, trial, death, and resurrection. The book concludes with an epilogue. In this video, we're just going to focus on the first half. 
So the book opens with a two-part introduction. First, a poem that begins, in the beginning, was the Word. An obvious allusion to Genesis 1, when God created everything with his Word. Now, a person's words, they're distinct from that person, but they're also the embodiment of that person's mind and will. And so John says that God's Word was with God, that is distinct. And yet the Word was God, that is divine. And as we ponder this claim, we hear later in the poem that this divine word became human in Jesus. Then John goes on to draw from the stories of Exodus, saying that Jesus was God's tabernacle in our midst. The glorious divine presence that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant became a human in Jesus. Which leads to his last claim, that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Son, who has become human to reveal the Father to us. Now, as we consider these mind-bending claims, we then start to hear a story about how John the Baptist first met Jesus and then led other people to meet him and become his disciples. And one by one, as people encounter Jesus, they say out loud who they think he is. And in this one chapter, Jesus is given seven titles. Now, these titles prepare us for John's love of sevens in designing the book, but altogether they also make a claim that this fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the messianic king, he's the teacher of Israel, and he's the son of God who will die for the sins of the world. Now that's a big claim to make about someone, and John will now go on to support it through the stories in chapters 2 through 12. They all have the same basic pattern. Jesus will perform a sign or make a claim about himself, and that will result in misunderstanding or controversy. And so in the end of each story, people are forced to make a choice about who they think Jesus is. The first section shows Jesus encountering four classic Jewish institutions, and in each case, Jesus shows that he is the reality to which that institution pointed. So Jesus is at a wedding party, and the wine runs out, and Jesus then turns these huge jugs of water, like 120 gallons total, into the best wine ever. And the head waiter says to the groom, you've saved the best wine for last, which is, of course, true. But John also calls this miracle Jesus's first sign. In other words, it's a symbol that reveals something about Jesus. So just as Isaiah said that the messianic kingdom would be like this huge party with lots of good wine, so this first miraculous sign reveals the generosity of Jesus's kingdom. Next, Jesus goes to the Jerusalem temple, the place where heaven and earth were supposed to come together and God would meet with his people. And Jesus asserts his authority over it, running out all the money exchangers, stopping the sacrificial offerings. And when the temple leaders threaten him, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus is claiming that his coming sacrificial death is where heaven and earth will truly meet together. His body that will be killed is the reality to which the temple building points. Then Jesus has this all-night conversation with a rabbi named Nicodemus who thinks that Jesus is just like him, another rabbi and teacher for Israel. But Jesus says that Israel needs much more than just another teacher with new information. Israel needs a new heart and a new life. Or in his words, no one can experience God's kingdom without being born again. Jesus believes that humans are caught in a web of selfishness and sin that leads to death. But he also knows that God loves this world. And so he's here to offer people a new birth, a new chance at life. 
From here, Jesus travels north and he ends up at a sacred well in a conversation with a Samaritan, that is a non-Jewish woman. And they start talking about water, which Jesus turns into a metaphor for himself. He says he's here to bring living water that can become a source of eternal life. Now in John, this term refers to a new quality of life, one that's infused with God's eternal love, and it's a life that can begin now and last on into the future. After this, John has designed another collection of stories that took place during four Jewish sacred days or feasts. And again, Jesus uses the images related to the feasts to make claims about himself. So Jesus first heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, which starts a controversy with the Jewish leaders about working on the day of rest. And Jesus says it's his father who's working on the Sabbath, and so is he. And they catch his meaning, that he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God, and so they want to kill him. The next story takes place during Passover, the feast that retold the Exodus story with the symbolic meal of the lamb and bread and wine. And Jesus miraculously provides food for a crowd of thousands, which results in people asking him for more bread. And then Jesus goes on to claim that he is the true bread, and if they eat him, they will discover eternal life. And this offends many people who stop following him. After this is a block of stories set in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, which retold the story of Israel's wilderness wanderings as God guided them with the pillar of cloud and fire and provided them water in the desert. And Jesus gets up in the temple courts and he shouts, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And then later he says, I am the light of the world. He's claiming to be the illuminating presence of God and the life-saving gift of God to his people. And some people believe and follow him, but others are offended and still others try to kill him for these exalted claims. The final feast story is during Hanukkah, which means rededication. It's about how Judah Maccabee cleared the temple of idols and set it apart as holy once more. And Jesus goes into the temple area and says that he is the one whom God has set apart as the Holy One, and that he is the true temple where God's presence dwells. And he also says, I and the Father are one. This makes the Jerusalem leaders so angry, they set in motion a plan to kill Jesus, and so he retreats from the city. Now all these conflicts, they culminate in one last miraculous sign. Jesus hears that his dear friend Lazarus is sick, but his family lives near Jerusalem, which is now a death trap for Jesus. Now, Jesus could stay away and he would save his own life, but he loves Lazarus. So once he hears that Lazarus has died, he goes to raise him from the dead and he calls him to life out of his tomb, knowing that it will cost him his own life. And the news of this amazing sign, it spreads quickly, of course, and just as Jesus knew it happened, the Jerusalem leaders hear about it and begin conspiring to murder him. And so he rides into Jerusalem as Israel's king who's rejected by its leaders. So the first half of John draws to a close with this story about Jesus laying down his life as an act of love for his friend. And this, of course, is also a sign pointing forward to the cross, which we'll explore more in the next video. But for now, that's the first half of the Gospel of John. All right. So I, I think 
if you've never looked at the stuff that the Bible Project does, it's great. And it gives, that's a great summary of where we've been the last seven or eight weeks as we've been looking at these stories and these interactions that Jesus had. And many of the stories that were mentioned there may be familiar to, to you that we've talked about on Sunday mornings. And so here we are, and we've arrived at, as Scripture said, or as the, the video said, this final this final miracle that Jesus performed, the the raising of Lazarus. And it's a miracle and a story that even if you haven't spent a lot of time reading your Bible, or even if you haven't spent a lot of time in church and hearing teachings and preachings and messages, you've probably heard this story and what it looks like. And so um, we're going to jump into that. Before we do, if you would and you need a Bible, would you raise your hand? Our guest services team can bring that to you. Uh, if you have it on your phone or you have a copy of Scripture with you, I would love for you to open it up and read along with me. And we're going to jump through it a little bit, and, and we're going to focus a lot on chapter 11, but uh, you'll, I encourage you to read on through chapter 12, which is basically a celebration of the raising of Lazarus. Uh, and so before we do that, and as you're flipping that open, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to speak to us during this time. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much, Father, for spiritual sight. We thank you that you've already given that to us this morning, a reminder of who you are and what you do, and a reminder, Jesus, of who we are in your name. We are family. We've been born again into your family. We have been given new life that is eternal. I thank you for reminding us of that this morning. Jesus, I pray that as we read and open uh, your word and we read this story of Lazarus, Jesus, that you would give us spiritual sight to see deep kingdom truth. God, that we would see things that we've never seen before. That we'd see our own lives in the light of it in a different way. And Jesus, that when you say that you are the life and the resurrection, that for us, Lord, that that means something significant. So I thank you for your promise that as we gather in your name, you are in our midst. And I thank you for being here now. I pray that you would speak through me, humble my words and my heart, myself, God, and speak through your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So John chapter 11, and uh, like I said, we're going we're gonna to read through this story, and we're really going to look at the story of the raising of Lazarus in kind of three different sections. And so rather than what I typically do is I will read the entirety of the, pas- uh, the passage that we're looking at, or the scripture that we're talking about in the morning, and then go back and teach through it. We're going to do it a little bit differently because we know the story. We know what happens. And so what I really want to do is look at the intricacies and kind of the intimacies of this story. And like I said, these are people that Jesus loved. This is his family. And I know a lot of times we think about the disciples as those people for him. And and they are, no doubt. But uh, we look at not just Lazarus, but his sisters, Mary and Martha. And those are, there are two women and two sisters that you've heard about before. And these are, these are Jesus' family, and they mean the most to him. And as we've talked about, Jesus has, has gone away, withdrawn, and this is his final and greatest miracle. And so um, he gets word in, in John chapter 11 that Lazarus is sick. And it says this in verse 3. It says, so the sisters, this is Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, 
It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And his scripture specifically points that out, out that he loved these people dearly. And this love is, uh, is it's agape love, no doubt, because that's, that's how Jesus loved unconditionally. But this, this love is this philia love. It's the same. It's the way that you love a brother or that you love a friend, or that you love a family, a family member. They call Philadelphia the city of brotherly love, and that's the type of love here that it's talking about. He loved them a lot like family in a significant way. And so it continues on. So, he, so Jesus loves them and says that God is going to be glorified and that this will not end in death. And so then he says, uh, he says to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. So Jesus knows that what he's walking back into is certain death. And it's amazing, and we see it in the story, that Jesus knows that Lazarus's life is not going to end in death. And this is one of the things that it's hard to understand often about Christ and about Scripture, about our own self, about God, is that how do we have free will, yet God knows what we're going to do? And what is it, how do those two things work together? And so there's going to be a few things this morning that I'm going to talk about and a few answers that what I would like to do is I would like to leave unanswered. And I know that sometimes that makes us uncomfortable and that pushes on uh, things that we like and we feel comfortable with. We live in the day and in the revolution of technology and in the day of information. And we think that everything has an answer and there's an answer for everything. And that is true in a lot of ways. That the days of like you're sitting with someone and thinking, what is that movie or that person? I can't remember. Those days are gone, right? If you can't remember, you just get out your phone and you look up or you Google the actor or the movie title or whatever it is and you find out the information. And so a lot of times when we look at Scripture, we tend to look at Scripture that way. We think that there's an answer for everything and everything has an answer. And we can get wrapped up and bogged down in that a lot of times. And I'm not saying that that isn't good or that you shouldn't seek answers. But what I'm saying is wrestling with things when it comes to Scripture and truth is good. And so what I would like to do this morning is to leave some things unanswered and some suggestions. And I could stand up here as your pastor and I could tell you why. Why this thing is the way it is or why it works the way it works. But one detail, and we'll start right here, is that Scripture tells us in this, when he gets word, when Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick, it says that Jesus waited before he went back. And as we know, in Jesus' waiting, it ended in Lazarus' death. So the question that I pose, and I suggest that you think about and consider this morning as we talk through and as you, you open the word and read it for yourself or in your quiet time or prayer time this week, is why does God wait? Why does God wait in the, why does Jesus wait in this moment? Why does he immediately go back and heal Lazarus? Why does he put him through the agony of death? And why does he put Mary and Martha through the agony of losing a brother, someone that they loved? And yet he waits. And why does Jesus do that with us? Why are there times in our lives that we ask the Lord of something, we pray for something, for an answer, or for God to come through, and instead we feel like Jesus said the Lord is waiting? And I think that there's so many good reasons, good theology to tell you why he waited that is undoubtedly true. 
But I want to encourage you to think about that for your own self. And so Jesus waits here in this moment. And it says that he loved them. And so there's a few things that's important to know. First of all, in this first part of this story, we see that Jesus hears. The story begins with Jesus hears. He hears about Lazarus. And interesting enough, he does not hear about Lazarus's sickness from Lazarus. Who does he hear it from? Mary and Martha? No. He doesn't even hear about it from Mary and Martha. It says that Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. He sent word to Jesus. So Jesus hears this from a messenger. And first and foremost, I think that this is important. The scripture says, so the sisters sent word to Jesus. Lord, the one that you love is sick. So the first thing I want to encourage you this morning is to never underestimate the power and the importance of praying for someone else. Never lose the importance of that. Is that the, the, the idea and the truth and the power of taking a message to the Lord on behalf of someone else is powerful and significant. And that's what Jesus, that's what happens here, is that, the, that Jesus hears about Lazarus's sickness through someone else. And I will, I will be honest, I do not pray for everything. That, that my job and the role that I'm in and the world that I live in is filled with prayer requests. And I don't mean that negatively or badly. I mean that in a good and healthy way. Is that I hear about things to pray for every single day. And, and so I've gotten in a habit of praying for them right then and there. Like, okay, you know, I hear from Marie and she's got this job interview coming up. Will you pray for me? I'm, I'm going to pray for it right then. And, 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 and so I can, a lot of ways, check it off my box. I pray for her. I can technically say I've prayed for you. But I wonder, like, what is my heart in that? And so the truth is, is that I don't always pray for everything. But everything gets prayed for. And that's important to know as I think that God puts people in our lives and in our hearts to, to go and to intercede on their behalf to the Lord. And so it's in, the first and foremost, it's important that you are praying for others and that you are delivering a message to Jesus, that you are sending word on behalf of someone else. I'm in a, an authenticity group. I meet with four other guys. We meet every other week without fail and without exception. If one person can't be there, we reschedule or we find another time and we're all there. And I pray for those guys all the time. I pray for them throughout the week. I pray. I know what's going on in their lives. And we don't just share little truths like, oh, and my prayer request is my uh, great aunt, uh, Susan. She's got this thing on her neck and we're praying that, you know, or whatever. And not that great aunt Susan doesn't need prayers for her. But what we share and what we talk about during that time is here's what's going on with me. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what the Lord is doing in my life. Here's how I need prayer. And so I want to encourage you first and foremost to pray for one another. To be one of our core values here is authenticity, to be in genuine, authentic relationship with other people. And that's what family looks like because people can pray for you. Not because you've told them or you've written it on a prayer card, which please write it on a prayer card because that is important. And we have a prayer team that gives their time to praying through those every week but because they're praying for you, they're praying for one another because they know you. And so the first and foremost is don't ever underestimate that power. Colossians 4 chapter 2 says this. It says, devote yourself to prayer for being watchful and thankful. First of all, it says, devote yourselves to prayer. 
He is, as Paul is writing that to the church, uh, the, the Colossians, he is saying that you all devote yourself to prayer. Because the truth is, is if we've, we are devoted to prayer as a whole, as a body, every one of those prayer requests, every one of those needs gets taken to the Lord. Everything that comes up gets taken to God. Every message is delivered that Jesus will hear on behalf of every one of us. The second thing it talks about is being watchful and thankful. It's about meaning that you're being attentive to what's going on around you. And, and again, I will go back to, or I will go to my small group. Not only am I an authenticity group with these men, but our, our family, we, Shay and I do a small group together with, with neighbors and friends and other people in our church. And we know what's going on in, our, in each other's lives and we're watchful for it. We've got one couple in our, in our small group right now, Jorge and Lisa, is that Jorge has gotten a job in Orlando. And so for the past two weeks, Jorge has been in Orlando while Lisa and the girls have been here. That's hard. That's a hard thing to do. It's hard to be away from your family. It's hard for husband and wife to be separated for, for any amount of time. And so we are watchful for them. Lisa lives, they live across the street from us. And so Shay and I are watchful for them. We are literally watching out our front door. And Jorge got home this past weekend. And Shay and I saw his car in the driveway. And we we're like, thank God. Thank you, Lord, that he's home. And they'd hear he is safe and that they're getting to be together, right? We're asking Lisa, hey, is everything, how's it going? How's it going with the girls? And so that's what it looks like for Jesus to hear. And he hears about this with Lazarus. He gets word that Lazarus is sick. And so I want to encourage you first and foremost to that is that the idea that Jesus hears and, and that we can often think about ourselves as a number, when it comes to being a Christ follower and being a Christian, we can, can imagine ourselves as a number in a system, just another number in the system. And we see here this line that I love in verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. The scripture makes a point of pointing each one of them out, that Jesus loves them. And as I was working on that this week, I literally wrote down in my, in my journal, I wrote, Jesus loves Jake Toman. That's powerful. It's that you are not a number. And so wherever you are right here, I don't care if you have your phone out or a piece of paper, I want you to write down, Jesus loves, don't write Jake Toman. You can if you want, because it's true. But I want you to write, Jesus loves Lauren Kalina, right? Jesus loves Jacob Hawthorne. Jesus loves Russ Robinson. And just look at those words and understand that that is true. Is that you are not a, just a number in the system. Is that Jesus loves you. And there's a moment in time this week that I guarantee you that you are going to need to see that. You are going to need to be reminded that I am not just a number. I am not just, when I think about myself as a sheep in the flock, I'm not just a fuzzy white sheep that's lost among, the, among the, the hundreds and the thousands and the dozens, that Jesus loves me by name. So we see that in this story. The second thing we, the second thing we see here is that Jesus comforts. Uh, and, and like I said, that Jesus waits two days, that two days pass, and, and Lazarus dies. He dies. And it's funny, there's this little uh, instance here where he's talking with his disciples, and he tells them, Jesus says, Lazarus has, has uh, it says, Lazarus has fallen asleep, is what Jesus says. And I'm going there to wake him up, is the way that Jesus puts it. He tells his disciples, 
Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going to wake him up. And they said, well, great. That's great. He needs to rest. I'm glad he's getting his rest. Sleep is good. When you're sick, he's like, no, 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 no. Let me be more clear and more blunt. So Jesus says, Lazarus is dead. He's dead. And I'm going to wake him up. So Jesus travels and he's going to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And as he's, he's coming up, Martha sees him. And she goes out to him. She meets him uh, before he even can arrive to the home. And Scripture tells us that they are at the home together, Mary and Martha, and they have friends and neighbors, and they're mourning together. And, and if you've ever lost a loved one, or if you've ever had a, a family member that's sick, you know what that looks like, how people are caring for you, how they're bringing food, how they're asking how you're doing, how they're, they're, they're coming to your home to just be with you. And that's what's happening here. But Martha knows that Jesus is coming, and so she meets him. And in verse 21, we see this interaction between first, first Martha, then Mary. And so in verse 21, this is Martha coming out to Jesus. She says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So here he is and he meets Martha on this road on his way to their home. And she gives him this line. She says, Lord, if only you had been here. Lazarus wouldn't have died. And the interesting thing about Scripture is that we do not have tone. We don't know how Martha said that to Jesus. Did she say, Jesus, if, if, only, if only you would have been here, he would have made it. He would have been healed, heartbroken. Or is she saying, Jesus, I sent for you. I sent word. And if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And, that, and, and we've, if you've lost a loved one, you know how both of those feelings and both of those tones are true all at the same time. And so we see this interaction that he has with Martha. Then Mary, and then Mary gets word that he's come. Martha tells him, Jesus, the master is here. And so Mary goes out to him. And I just love this, that just if you look at Mary and Martha and just the opposites that they are as sisters, and we see it here in verse 32, it says this, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they, they replied. And Jesus wept. And I love John chapter 11, verse 35. You can, you can get a checkbox right here for being a Christian today. You can memorize scripture. We're all gonna memorize. John chapter 11, verse 35, last two sentences, last two words, Jesus wept. Now you have scripture memorization checked off for today. But it's this sweet image of you see the emotion of Jesus, that he's heartbroken over this moment. 
over this experience. And, and we get this picture of Jesus comforting. And so not only does Jesus hear about Lazarus, the second thing that happens is that Jesus comforts. And we see this contrast of Mary and Martha and how there are the, these two people that are polar opposites. And it's highlighted again and again in Scripture as we hear this. We hear a lot of stories about Mary and Martha and how different they are as sisters. And it's funny because it reminds me a lot. I do not have a sister, but I have a wife with a sister. And so it reminds me a lot of Shay and her sister, Brittany. And they're so funny because these two, you know, Shay's the older sister. And sometimes I wonder because she is total old sister like oldest sibling, and I'm the youngest sibling in my family, and sometimes she's mean to me. You know how older siblings can be? She's kind of bossy and mean to me. It's just how older siblings are, and I'm the youngest, and I just kind of take it, you know, and I feel sorry for myself. I'm like, I should have married a younger sister, right? Like, this hurts my feelings. She would understand, but I see this, I see this relationship between Shay and her younger sister, Brittany, and it's, it's fun to watch because they are very different, they're very different. And a lot of times their differences are highlighted in how they respond to things. When something happens, Shay responds this way and Brittany responds this way and they're opposite. And neither one of them necessarily is the right response. And one may be right in one moment and one may be right in the next, but they respond very differently. The funny thing is they're more similar than they would either one of them would like to admit. But we see this with Mary and Martha in Scripture. We see again and again how their differences are highlighted in how they respond to something. Not not in just regular everyday moments, but it's in their response. When Jesus comes to their home, we see their response to Jesus coming. Martha's cleaning the house. She's getting everything ready. She's making sure there's food on the table. And she's frustrated with Mary because what's Mary doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, right? And we see this again here with how they respond to the death of their brother. We see that Lazarus has died, and we see that how Martha and Mary respond differently. And the beauty is, is that Jesus comforts each one of them differently. He comforts each one of them differently and appropriately. And it's this beautiful reminder and image of what spiritual gifting looks like. Scripture tells us that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and that we find life in Christ and that we are born again, that God gives us spiritual gifts and that every one of us has a different giftings. And it's not like you, you get three gifts and, and it's a roll of the dice. It's that we have, the, we, have these, we have these different giftings that are alive in our lives. So for me, like to be able to stand up and to talk and to, to be able to teach and to explain Scripture, like this is for me is, is comfortable. It's just within my gifting. There's some of you out there that think, man, putting the microphone in my hand sounds like the worst thing ever, right? And that's not your gifting. But the beauty is, is that within the entirety of the body, within the body of Vessel Collective, and that we are a collective, that every one of the spiritual gifts is represented in the body, just as it was in Jesus. You see, Jesus had every gift in spades. He had the gift of teaching. He had the gift of mercy. He had the gift of hospitality. He had the gift of healing. He had every gift in spades. And that when he left, and when he, he left the giftings to us in our body, the body of Christ that we are, every one of them is represented. And we see the gift of, um, of mercy shown here. In Romans chapter 12, verses 8, it says this. If, if it is to, talking about spiritual giftings, if your gift is to encourage then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. 
If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. And we see Jesus in this moment being the ultimate comforter, the ultimate encourager, the ultimate shower of mercy in this moment. And so it starts with Martha, is that she comes out to meet him. And, she, and the interesting thing is that both sisters say the same thing. Martha says, Lord, if you were just here, he wouldn't have died. When he sees Mary, Mary says, Lord, if you were just here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. They both say the same thing, but they respond differently. And so we see Martha is that what does Jesus do? He talks her through it, right? She is a talker. She is the type of person that wants to get everything, all their ducks in a row and understand and talk it through. And so Jesus patiently helps her to see the spiritual reality through the physical pain. She's experienced the pain of losing her brother, and Jesus patiently walks her through and helps her to see. He says to her, he says, your brother will rise again. And it's interesting, Martha says, I know, I know, I know. He's going to rise on the last day, on the resurrection. I know he's going to rise. And it's this, you get this picture, she's not struggling with her faith. That, that, that Martha is not having this crisis of faith moment where she's doubting what she believes. The truth is, is that what? She's broken hearted. So when Jesus says he will rise again, Martha says, I know, I know, I know the last day is coming and I know that he will rise again in the resurrection. I know that Jesus, but he's patient with her. He's like, you don't get it. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And that whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe it? That he talks her through. He, he patiently helps her to see like, Martha, there's, you're not seeing the spiritual reality here. Is that there's not, this doesn't end in death. That this ends in life. And the resurrection on the last day is me. That's who I am. And he's not mean about it. He's not harsh about it. He patiently talks her through the understanding of theology. And then he comes to Mary. And Mary, same thing. She says the same thing. Lord, if you have been here, but look at her. It says in verse 13, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, what did she do? She falls to his feet. She falls to Jesus' feet, weeping at his feet. And that is the place of Mary is at the feet of Jesus. Think about when Jesus comes to the home of Mary and Martha. As Martha's rushing around, doing everything, making sure everything's in place, what's Mary doing? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. In John chapter 12, the very next chapter, when they're celebrating Lazarus being raised again, Mary anoints the feet of Jesus that she gets down at his feet and pours perfume out on his feet and washes his feet, that that is her place. And she falls to the feet of Jesus weeping. What does Jesus do? He say, no, no, you don't get it, Mary. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. He's going to rise again. What does Jesus do? How does he comfort her? He weeps with her. Jesus wept. If that is not the sweetest, kindest, most comforting thing that she needed in that moment, it's this beautiful picture of how Jesus is the ultimate comforter. And I love this contrast of Mary and Martha. You think about the funeral of Lazarus. Martha is the one that plans it all. 
She calls funeral homes. She gets the flowers arrangements. She gets, she gets invitations out. I'll write the obituary. I'll get it to the newspaper. We'll get all the information out. We'll get it all buttoned up. Got the reception at our house afterwards. I know what food's going to be brought. But what does Mary do? Mary's the one that gives the eulogy, right? Mary's the one that stands in front of him and gives, tells him who Lazarus was and how much he was loved and how much they were loved by him. You see this this beauty contrast between these two people and how Jesus comforts them both perfectly and appropriately. And that's what he does with us is that when we walk through tragedy, not if, when we walk through tragedy, that Jesus comforts us exactly how we're needed. It's interesting here because we a lot of think about to be a Christian means that everything's okay, or at least we portray this to the world, that everything's okay. I'm always happy. I always have joy. Everything's good. My life is great. That's not true. It's not true. Jesus says so. In this life, you will have trouble. Here's the house, the home that Jesus, the, the, the most favored household in all of history, the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This is Jesus's family. And what falls on their doorstep? But sickness and death that they are not exempt. And it wasn't like, oh, you know, we didn't pray for the hedge. Should have prayed for the hedge of protection. We forgot about the hedge. We didn't pray the hedge up. And now death has fallen. It wasn't that. And I believe in those things. We prayed this morning as we prayed in our prayer time with our prayer time. We prayed that God would put a hedge of protection around our church. That's real. As your, as your 18-year-old drives five hours off to college, guess what? You're praying for protection, and you should, Right? And so I'm not saying that don't pray for protection, but just don't think that because sickness has fallen or or tragedy or heartbreak on my family or my life, it's because I didn't pray the right thing or I did something wrong. Here we we see Jesus, the house that Jesus likely loved the most in his flesh and his humanness, that death falls on their their, their doorstep. And Jesus perfectly comforts them. And, and, and then we get to the third act of chapter 11. Not only does Jesus hear, not only does Jesus comfort, but then the most, the greatest miracle that he ever performs that Jesus raises. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So he says to them after he weeps with them, he says, take me to the tomb. Take me to where he's buried. Four days have passed. Four days. And, and tradition, not theology, tells them that that's official death, right? And in the, in the Jewish tradition back then, three days, like, man, okay, maybe, but day four, nah, you're dead, 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 right? And so it's no mistake that four days have passed. And again, that's tradition, not theology, that four days have passed. And so Jesus says, take me to the grave where he's buried. So in verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, says Martha, this is so Martha, right? But Lord, says Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Right? If you're reading your King James Version, this is the greatest verse in all of the King James Bible. It says, Lord, he stinketh, is literally what King James translation says. So if you like to read King James, this is the greatest King James uh, scripture verse in all the Bible. Lord, he stinketh, right? There's a bad odor where he's been laid. 
And Jesus tells them, don't you believe what, who I am? Don't you believe at what I've done, what I'm going to do? Then in verse 43, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And I can't help but smile reading this story because, um, you know, you read Scripture and it reminds you of a time in your life where maybe you heard or taught or first read that story. And I think about uh, one one year where we were in Nicaragua. This was years ago. And we we took a trip to to Nicaragua. And we taught this story at their little Bible school to the kids there that day. And we did like a little, uh, it was like a little skit of sorts. And so we had a narrator and we had people play the roles. And we had our Reed Langhanig played Lazarus in this fight. And this was like, he was in college. He was an intern. This was, I think this was before he and Micah were even married. And so Reed played Lazarus and there's this funny, uh, you know, the kids got to wrap him up. You know, we had toilet paper and they wrapped him all up and he laid him down on the stage. So Jesus was Lazarus and, and somebody read the script. And at the moment where Jesus said, uh, Lazarus, you know, called out to him, Lazarus, come out. Then Reed gets up off the stage and the toilet paper's torn off and he walks out and the kids are all like, yeah, you know. And so I can't, I, I hear this story and I think about this, this moment. But this is, this is this beautiful, climactic culmination of the life and ministry of Jesus. That as, as we heard in that Bible Project video, that this is Jesus as a lamb coming to the slaughter. He's coming back in to raise his friend from the dead. The greatest miracle and up to this point, Jesus has done so much. He has healed, the, he's healed blindness. He's, he's done the miracle and, and, and conquered hunger. He's healed the lame. He's even done the miracle of keeping the party going at the wedding in Cana. But here he is, and he does the seventh and last miracle that he performs is the greatest of all, that he conquers death itself. The very thing, the manifestation of sin The wage of sin is death. The manifestation of sin becoming death, that Jesus conquers even it. James 1.5 says, sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. And that here it is, and Jesus conquers, not just blindness, not just the sick, not just feeding of the 5,000, but he conquers death itself. And he says, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. And I want you to know, that the same miracle that he performed on Lazarus is the same miracle that he performs in us. That the wages of sin is death. And that spiritually, you are dead if you have not accepted Jesus Christ. That your soul and spirit are dead. And as miraculous as Lazarus getting up and walking out of that grave is the same thing that happens to us when we are given life in Jesus Christ, that it is literally the same thing. And it's the greatest miracle of Jesus and is this example and this this beautiful picture about who he is. He is the resurrection and he is the life. And I want to tell you that sometimes we don't get to see all the spiritual things and that we are praying for spiritual eyes to see. And I want you to know that what Jesus does when you say yes to him and you give your life to Christ, he takes what is dead and he gives life. It is the opposite. The opposite of death is life. And he exchanges those two things, the two things that couldn't be more opposite. 
he does. So Jesus hears you. Jesus comforts in time of tragedy, and Jesus raises and gives life where there is death. And I want you to know, church, that we live and walk and operate in that reality, that spiritual truth and spiritual reality. So as we close, I'm going to invite the worship team back up here, and we're going to close with this song titled Victory in Jesus. And I know that this has been a, 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 like a throwback Sunday, uh, again, with worship, and we sing I'll Fly Away and, and all these, this, these beautiful old songs. But this song, Victory in Jesus, was written by a guy named Ian Bartlett. Ian Bartlett. So Ian Bartlett was, was, a, was a songwriter during the late 1800s, early 1900s. He would, he, would write, he would write music, and he wrote a ton of Christian gospel uh, old hymns and songs. And um, he even wrote rock, I mean, he wrote rock and roll and blues and all this sort of stuff. He was this great songwriter. And Ian Bartlett was, uh, was famous for his joy. He was someone that loved Jesus Christ, someone that was filled with joy, and someone who had lived in life abundance every day. And that he, he rose in his most, the highest level of popularity for Ian Bartlett and his songwriting. He would play shows and music, and people would come all around to see him. And that the height of his, um, his musicianship and what he was doing was during the Great Depression. And that, that legend says, and the story goes, that people would give their last nickel to hear Ian Bartlett sing. They would travel, and they would pick the last money in their account so that they could hear him sing. And it wasn't for, for his voice or his musicianship, but it was because of his joy. That during a very depressed time in the world and in our country, that he was this embodiment of joy and of victory and of celebration and that people could pay their last nickel and get this last little sliver and taste of joy. And, and, and that that's what he embodied because that's who he was. And in 1939, on his way home from a show, uh, Ian Bartlett had a stroke. And I, and I, heard, this, I heard this on the radio uh, this week on, on the Christian radio. And this guy was telling this story, and he's writing this book about the, the story behind the music. And so he, Ian Bartlett has this stroke uh, as he's coming home from a show. And by the time they get him to, to the help that he needs, he's, he's crippled and paralyzed. They, they, he, he can't speak. He can't walk. And then he's become crippled. And here's this person that embodied joy and life during a very depressed time to now he's, he's bedridden. And so everything that he was and who he was and his identity was taken away from him and he, he, on his doorstep fell tragedy. And they say that Ann Bartlett had every right to be angry and upset. He'd given his life to writing music for the Lord. And so as the story goes, is that his hands were crippled. And that in his, in his, in his last years that he forced a pen into his hand and painstakingly wrote his most famous song ever written and recorded. It's called Victory in Jesus. And so we're going to sing that this morning. So I want you to stand, and I'm going to pray. And I want you to think about that truth in our own lives. Dear Lord, I thank you, Father, that we have victory and life in you. Jesus, I thank you that when you said that you were the, you were the life and the resurrection, God, that that was true not for Lazarus, but for us today. Lord, that we find life in you. I thank you that we can stand 
in your presence and among family and among strangers and in your midst, and we can claim that we have victory in you because you have won the grave. Jesus, that you gave life where there is death. That every one of us, you say, Jake Toman, walk out of that grave. And you give life there. God, I praise you and I thank you for that. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We thank you for listening today and pray that you are blessed by this message. We invite you to join with us on Sundays or connect with us at our website, vessel.church.